1: We are in the high days of summer, and this week in the CLE, we got some heat for the stories we'll be talking about. It's the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with colleagues Chris Warnowski, Laura Johnston, and Jane Cahoon. I hope you guys are keeping your cool in this hot week of summer.
2: So far, so good.
1: Yeah, it's, it's easier when I can, you know, sit in
0: the office in the air conditioning and, you know not have to put on
2: more pants
1: that's true are we ever are we ever going to have use for our work wardrobes again i know it's just
2: hanging in the closet and i looked at downtown last weekend i was on a boat actually and i looked at those buildings i was like there's an entire city there that no one is in right now and it just (laughs) seems so (laughs) senseless well it's weird like
3: switching out the clothes from you know winter to summer and saying oh Didn't wear that. Didn't wear
1: that. Didn't wear that. Well, and those tall buildings, Laura. There was a study about a uh, one person in an elevator ended up infecting seventy-one people, um, not even being present an asymptomatic person. So, I think buildings with elevators are in trouble for the near and far future. Let's get started. What does the latest video of the May 30th riot show, and do we have a single piece of evidence that supports the Cleveland police version of what happened that day? Chris Ranowski, Corey Schaefer just continues to crank out enlightening pieces of content about that day, and he has a story published this very morning that is a bit of a jaw dropper. What does it say?
0: So we continue to get sort of gradual clarity about what exactly happened in these demonstrations between police and, and the demonstrators? what he got last week, which they dropped on us at like five o'clock on Thursday the day before a holiday, um, was some aerial footage out of the hell the police helicopters and some radio communications between people on the ground and some of the sort of the administrative officers who were sort of overseeing the response and what this really sort of paints a picture of is a very unprepared force of police. And there's really, again, no evidence to support the claim that the police, that Calvin Williams made, police chief Calvin Williams made that, that people breached the, the justice center, you know, nothing, no evidence of that whatsoever. What it shows is also that this claim that people were throwing rocks was the reason they started shooting pepper balls and flash grenades? Now, it, it is worth noting that that there is some explanation here that that somebody did start somebody from the protest side did throw glass bottle, um, but for the most part, they were being pelted with. I remember seeing fruit. I remember seeing plastic water bottles and a lot of that. And and then what happened is after. There was an order to disperse that nobody could hear from the back of the crowd, and then they started uh, shooting pepper. Balls wait, wait, stop! Let's so they- stop there because the
1: audio that Corey listened to deals with the dispersal. At one point, somebody in charge says, "Wait, wait, wait! We can't do that yet. I have to do the dispersal order." So they seem right. to recognize they should do one. It was the effectiveness that mm-hmm. was the problem, but the most the most important part of this really is that that this agitated the crowd the crowd there were a few people doing bad things you know throwing plastic bottles or throwing food but it didn't really hit high intensity until the police started and what's clear from this this story is the reason they did what they did is they were overwhelmed i mean they said we're getting our butts kicked down here we're overwhelmed we need help we need help we need help And without the help, that's when they start shooting. So
0: if, if you remember, like one of the things that happened was the first responding officers were the bike patrol and they were unarmed and. There was a moment where people were really kind of pushing up against them, and then there was a moment where, and I remember this very distinctly because I was there. It, it, there was a moment where somebody, one of the officers, pepper sprayed a, a handful of people that were right up front. The bike
1: officer and, did, right, right, and and a bunch of people went running, and that the was before and the dispersal order. That was preceded right. everything else, right, right. And then
0: there was a moment where somebody was running equipment out. But but I think what stands out the most is there was a quote in this, and this happened at 348, and it came from 3rd District Commander Dorothy Todd, who said, quote, Pepper Balls have been deployed. Seems like it's agitating some of them. What a shock. And, right. And so what happens after this is you see a gradual escalation coming. It's sort of like up volley. like It's like a game of tennis, like, it gets more intense on one side; the other side gets more intense. It gets more intense on one side; the other side gets intense. And so, you know, that's after that is when. And I look, I saw this. I, I witnessed. I witnessed somebody break up a chunk of sidewalk and hurl it at, at the cops. But this was after
1: flash grenade, after flash grenade. All right, but smoke but, but, after smoke. You know. And, but, okay, well and let's so I, let's take it back to the story. So, but in 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 fairness to the police. The bike cops were feeling endangered. There weren't that many of them. They don't have a lot of weaponry. They got the pepper spray. They're wearing their helmets, but no face shields. And the crowd, while it wasn't attacking them, it was banging on the windows and it was pushing up against the building. And their goal was to establish a safe perimeter for the building. And they couldn't do it given the resources they had. So if you were one of those bike patrol officers, you would have felt. Endangered. I mean, I think that comes across clearly in this story that they were vulnerable. If the crowd had suddenly decided to surge, they would have been overwhelmed. So so they needed help there. And you can see why I don't want to use the word panic, but but some of the quotes kind of sound like panic. So I, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, the police are standing there and the crowd is standing there minding their business. This was high tension crowd with real potential for serious danger that the police were worried about. But what is clear is when they fire the pepper balls, things things take off from there. They had not taken off yet, and maybe they would have anyway, but they had not until police fired that stuff.
0: Right, and I, I get the sense, and you know, somebody is is welcome to make this argument that a better prepared force. Of, of police could have managed this and and could have kept this under control without it reaching the point that it did because if you listen to some of the communication it's very clear that i mean there there are moments in the communication where they're screaming and can't communicate I mean they can't you know, hear people, each other right they can hear each other and and you know in in trying to sort of look at it from their perspective I can understand their fear too and it, and it's not you know it, right it can, that, you're, that, that, That's a management. You're
1: absolutely right. And we, and Corey did that story talking to some of the officers about how woefully unprepared they felt they were. They didn't have the numbers. And that comes across. So, salute to Corey. He just keeps cranking them out. It's one after another. And I think he's got a few more coming soon. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is President Donald Trump's logic for opposing any move to rename the Cleveland Indians? We have coronavirus, we have social justice issues, but right now in Cleveland, it seems the biggest debate going on is, should you rename the Cleveland Indians? Jane Cahoon, the president weighed in. What's he say?
3: Well, first of all, you're you're asking about logic, really? (laughs) (laughs) First of all, I think you have to put this in context with His other recent rhetoric, things he said in, in recent days that seem to be a direct appeal to this country's division and, and frankly to, to racism. Uh, I think the New York Times characterized it as stoking white fear. Anyway, he tweeted, uh, yesterday that the Indians and the Washington Redskins chose their names out of strength, not weakness. And that now that they're considering these name changes, that's just to be politically correct. And um, and then he got a dig in there against Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, although he didn't call her Pocahontas as he usually does. But anyway, this, as I said, this goes along with his rhetoric over the last several days. He He's also attacked a black NASCAR driver, Bubba Wallace, uh, you know, uh, and decried NASCAR's decision to no longer fly the Confederate flag. And you know, his speeches at Mount Rushmore and at the White House, uh, you know, he labeled the Black Lives Matter protesters as, you know, angry mobs. And he just used a lot of false characterizations to to spread this message right. of doom and fear. But on the
1: Indians, his argument that these teams were named for strength. I, I was in a debate yesterday with somebody saying that these names were chosen to honor Native Americans, and, but the thing is, the Native Americans, a lot of them, don't see it as an honor, and it didn't so have
3: that result, did it? No.
1: So who are we to to say it shouldn't change? I mean, if if this is done to honor Native Americans and Native American groups are coming out of the woodwork to say, yeah, we we don't consider that an honor, we consider it to be disrespectful, you know, who are we to argue that that what well, that's wrong? This is for strength. They don't consider it for strength. It's, an, it's just an odd argument. Joey Morona wrote a, a really nice piece, one of our reporters kind of getting at that, that this is about the people who are most affected, not not the rest of us. But man, oh man, this is one of those <laughs> where the, the large majority of people, I think, in Cleveland feel strongly about it. They also felt strongly about Chief Wahoo. And I think anybody who, who did not grow up here who looked at that, <laughs> that icon saw it as, over the top racist but but in Cleveland cuz it was so traditional a lot of people just disagreed and they said it's a cartoon character it's all safe and so now we're going to engage in this debate about the name although Terry Pluto makes it sound like it's going they're going to change the name that that's going to happen but this is more about money than it is about what's right if if you start to have boycotts of advertisers with and sponsors of teams because they don't change their name as has been threatened in uh, the Washington Redskins case, then the teams lose their money. So it's interesting that the president, with all that's going on in this country, could take the time to weigh in on the Cleveland Indians and the Washington Redskins. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. With all the danger of the coronavirus out there, why is a prominent pediatrician's group pushing to get kids back into school buildings for the fall? For months, health experts have said shutting down the schools was a very smart way to stop the spread of the coronavirus in its early days because all those kids coming in would share the virus and they'd take it home and infect all of the vulnerable people. But Laura Johnston, we seem like we are on a freight train headed back into the schools that there's really no doubt that schools will be open and the kids will be mixing there. Why did kids' doctors think that's a good idea?
2: yeah this is the American Academy of Pediatrics. They want all discussions to start with the assumption that the school buildings will be will be open, and I don't think they're taking the idea of the spread of the virus lightly. They're doctors, they know the risk, but they also know that kids do not learn as well on a computer at home, and that equity is a huge issue. We're talking about online access, parental supervision, and just the ability to learn, and that the the risk of not educating kids is greater than the risk of spreading the coronavirus.
1: How do you make that value judgment? How do you make a value judgment that the risk of spreading the coronavirus much further and possibly getting people really sick or killing them is lesser than the, the educational deficiencies that result from kids being at home? I, it just, that's a really tough judgment to make. Do they, do they explain why that's so?
2: I mean, this, this story that Emily Bamforth wrote, it doesn't get into how they weighed this decision, but I mean, and I'm coming at this as a parent who felt really validated by this story, that the story says they can't focus for more than 15 minutes at a time. Like their brains just don't do that. So it's not just my kids. It's not just ADHD. And that. You look outside and you look at, I think we're going to talk about this later, but you look at people mixing in bars. You look at people, you talked about an elevator, you know, that people are going in, workplaces are opening. If they're going to open all those places that do not need to be opened, like, let's talk about the place where it is vital that kids get to go to have an education education. And if they fall behind for I mean, they've already fallen behind for what, six months? If if this keeps going, you're talking about an entire cohort of kids that doesn't get as good of an education as other kids in other time periods. And that's not fair to them.
1: But if so, teachers start succumbing to this, they're not I, I gonna mean, get much of an education as You're right. A result I mean the, you're
2: right. It is not a, a black and white issue. But I just, I've watched my kids. They cannot be expected to sit in front of a computer and watch videos and fill out Google Forms and be educated. They need to be in a classroom where a teacher can see if they understand the material, where they can work with their classmates. And, and you know, and and that's just my kids who have the access. I mean, all of these kids who don't have proper online access, whose kids, whose parents have to go to work, like, what are we supposed to do with those kids?
1: Two of the big points uh, that this, this study made. One was that the, the years when they learn math and reading, that's critical. And if, right. they, if we screw that up, that that has lifetime potential to hamper their ability to learn. And the other was that in social situations, they learn self-control, that they, they learn to control their emotions because of the, their peers being around them. And if you take them away from those social situations and their peers, you can end up with, with people that just don't get it and don't know how to act in public, which, which is interesting. I just wonder, can that happen in six months? I mean, if, if it took six months to get a vaccine where everybody could get back together, would all that damage be done or would we be better off not letting people get sick and dying for six months? Putting up with a lesser education to preserve the health of the community.
2: I mean, sure, if you say six months, can you make it six more months? I think we would all say, all right, if that's that's it, then we're gonna do that. But we've talked about this a lot. We don't know that there's ever gonna be a vaccine that really works. And I certainly don't think we're gonna have it in six months. And so it's this big idea that you have we have to find a way to make it work going forward. We cannot just sit in our houses and, and wait for this to be over.
1: Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How much are taxpayers spending to restock the Cuyahoga County Sheriff's Department with all the less lethal ammunition it fired at the unarmed crowd during the May 30th protest that turned into a riot? Chris Renowski, I'd love to see the inventory of what this money's going to buy and how much are they spending?
0: Uh, well, right now they're spending about forty one thousand dollars to buy i guess to replace some of the equipment that was used and some that was damaged during the the May thirtieth demonstration. so to break that down as much as we can right now the the purchase approved Monday includes about twenty four thousand dollars worth and less than lethal munitions, including pepper balls and tear gas and a little more than $16,000 for launchers uh, for such munitions and some riot shields and equipment holsters for deputies and guards. Um, one of the things that we learned from Corey Schaefer's story that he did uh, today is is that some of the launchers did not work. So they they were scrambling to get working equipment during, you know, in the middle of everything that was going on. So I think this is in part to replace some of that equipment.
1: I just would love to see the numbers because I think it would show exactly how many pepper balls they did fire at people or rubber bullets or tear Mm -hmm. gas canisters, which they've been kind of stingy and we continue to work away at getting the information. So getting the inventory of what they're buying, I think might be instructive. We'll have to pursue that Uh, $41,000 for stuff to... to (laughs) (laughs) Work against the unarmed citizenry. You're listening this week in the CLE. With numbers of coronavirus cases spiking for weeks in Ohio, we've been expecting a corresponding increase in hospitalizations. So are we seeing them? Jane Cahoon, Rich Exner has been focused on this for, well, since the beginning of the pandemic. And what's he seeing?
3: Well, he is seeing an increase in hospitalizations, but not, not dramatically, but, but we are seeing it. The Ohio Hospital Association provides this data. And on Monday, there was an increase in patients with hospitals reporting 837 people hospitalized. And that's up from 730 on Sunday and 664 last Monday. But it's still not as high as it was during, I guess, what was a a peak earlier in the pandemic where the count was routinely in the 1,000 to 1,100 range each day before it then started dropping in May. But it is back up.
1: But it's the trend, right? I mean, it, look, mm-hmm. the, there's always a lag. The cases go up right. then the hospitalizations go up, then deaths go up. And so we're on an upward trend in hospitalizations. Do we, do we have a lot of capacity before we get to the part where the hospitals can't take more?
3: Yeah, unlike those horror stories we're hearing now in in Texas, I think we're in pretty good shape still on hospital capacity, but you know, I mean if this thing gets out of control, I, you know, I don't I don't want to say like, "Oh, there's plenty of beds for everybody." It's just we don't know, you know, how this is going to go up. I would point out that the 805 cases that we had on Monday, I mean it wasn't as high as some of the recent days, but it did take that Seven day, this is just number of infections, that seven day rolling average up to a, a record level of like 987.
1: Yeah, and we do seem on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday to have lower case numbers. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we start to see the jump. So uh, we'll be watching closely the next few days to see if we get back into that 1300 area. The 1380 is the record. Will we top that? You're listening to this week in the CLE. Do I have to wear a coronavirus mask if I take a ferry to Put-in-Bay? Laura Johnston, you're the Lake Erie person. I'm sure (laughs) this is interesting to you. What's the story?
2: Yeah, you are now going to have to wear one, and it hasn't been like that. The uh, Miller Boat Line and Jet Express have been coordinating their policies since they started taking visitors amid the coronavirus to Put-in-Bay, South Bass Island, as well as Middle Bass Island. Miller is a slow ferry that takes cars from Catawba. The Jet Express is faster. It goes straight downtown uh, from Sandusky. But people were not paying attention to this strong recommendation for mask wearing. So now the boats are making it mandatory. They hope this is going to translate into visitors wearing masks for their entire trip to the island. You probably, I mean, I know you've seen the news reports, right? It's this notorious party spot and social media is full of pictures of people in swim up bars, not wearing masks, not social distancing. And uh, they've even been trying to, track some cases out of there, putting out news releases saying, if you were at this bar or this hotel, like you need to go get tested for coronavirus.
1: Have they changed the capacity of the boats? I mean, they pack people onto those things, right? So, so is there social distancing going on? Have they reduced the number of people that can be present?
2: I believe that they have. Yes. And I mean, a lot of the boat is outside, which is nice. Right. But we've talked about this before. Like, if you're downwind of somebody and they cough, you know, what is that going to do? So they do have indoor parts of the boats, too. And now they're just saying it's if you're six and up and you're getting on this boat, um, you got to wear a mask. And like I said, they, they hope this will show that the entire island is serious about them wearing masks for their visits.
1: This week, in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer. How many people were injured by fireworks during the Fourth of July weekend? Chris Ranowski, I thought we were going to see a lot of injuries because of the huge number of sales and all of the neighborhood displays that took place when most of the cities canceled their, their big public displays. So we finally quantified this. What did we find?
0: So two out of the three major hospital systems here have talked to us a little bit about what they found. At least 17 people suffered injuries uh, during the 4th of July weekend, including at least one that resulted in the amputation of someone's finger. So the university hospital said that they treated uh, 13 firework accidents between July 2nd and July 5th. And uh, those injuries included the amputation, burns to someone ar- someone's arm, cuts on someone's leg, hand injuries, and a burned foot. Uh, and Metro Health said that the hospital has treated at least four people for burns suffered in some incidents. And, you know, so that there's probably more people who got hurt who may have not gone to the hospital who suffered like minor injuries. But but these were sort of the the big ones that required hospital visits.
1: You know, I use the text message account that I have to to send to the subscribers yesterday, um, questions about whether the l- relatively no- low number of injuries would spur the Ohio legislature to follow through on legalizing fireworks in Ohio. Because, you know, as we all know, everybody that was firing off fireworks in Ohio was breaking the law. Uh, and a lot of them came back and said, you know, it's not just about the injuries. It's about people with PTSD and people with dogs that are really frightened of this. It's about the loud noises. There's a lot more going on here than injuries that ought to be uh, included in this discussion. Jane Cahoon, do you think that the relatively low number of injuries might get some action going on ending our liar's law in Ohio where people who buy fireworks have to basically agree they won't shoot them off?
3: Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I had the same reaction as some of your subtexters. It's like, okay, you're gonna point to like a relatively low number of injuries. I don't I don't think anybody really keeps track of how many injuries for one thing, but the whole you know, it seems like everybody I talk to is like, Oh my god, this has been so horrible with, you know, these things being shot off in our neighborhood all the time and so I certainly don't think that you know they're pushing their lawmakers to, to get that passed. But with the lawmakers, you never know. I believe it's passed one chamber, I think the House. And whether the Senate intends to take it up, they tend to be a little more restrained on these things. So I, I'm not hearing a big like outcry. I, I'm still hearing people that are just not happy about all of these amateurs setting off fireworks.
1: Is the general feeling, do we think, that most people are against neighborhood fireworks? So if, they had a, if the Senate had a hearing and they welcomed people to come in, do you think there'd be an overwhelming number of people saying, I hate this noise in my neighborhood? Or do you think most people would be like, hey, it's a celebration of Independence Day. It happens one week a year. What's the big deal?
3: I don't know if this, I can give an unbiased answer
2: to that. You wanna, <laughs> you take I, this is Laura Johnston. Everybody I talked to was like, it was so cool. I could just sit in my backyard and watch all these uh, people's fireworks. So, oh, for Too, I, I
1: thought it was a really kind of a special night. This because is, neighborhoods came together to do what their cities normally would do. Go ahead, Chris Wernowski.
0: So I, I think like when you're in the, when you live in the suburbs, it's a it's a little more Like, I don't know how much you you were in the city during the week ahead of of this, but everyone who lives downtown in Detroit Shoreway and like there were a lot of people who were having a really difficult time with the level of fireworks that were being fired. And not just on the day, but like in the week leading up to it, it's it's sort of like how people celebrate their birthday week. Now we were celebrating <laughs> America for like a whole a whole week. And it is, I mean, the, I was in Detroit shoreway the night and it was overwhelming. Like he, and, and I'm, you know, I'm not a, I'm a prudish and I'm not, you know, jumpy in any stretch uh, of the imagination. And it was like, wow, this is insane. How, how, how the level of fireworks that were being shot off. And you look at, Look at that aerial video that somebody took of L.A. and just how much was going on.
1: And and the other I, I think the other thing. That- well, but, uh, but but of course, <laughs> it's illegal and it's not stopping them. So I'm not right. sure. But also,
0: keep, the law. Keep, keep in mind, one of the reasons they might want to change this law is that Ohio is home to two of the biggest fireworks companies in the United States. You know, one of the only manufacturers of fireworks and one of the biggest retailers of fireworks. So, you know, fireworks are big business for the state, too. So, you know, they, that may have some influence on why this, this legislation is getting as far as it has. And if I recall correctly, DeWine said he does not support this. So I, I believe he said in one of the press conferences that he was going to defer to the expertise of of pediatricians and, and people who say that these are a danger to children.
1: Okay, okay so, but but this is like prohibition, right? right? I mean, if if everybody is drinking... And you prohibit drinking, then it's a stupid law. Yeah. I mean, it's illegal and it was omnipresent. What's the point? I mean, at some point, you you pretty much have to go with the will of the people because it's the law isn't stopping it. You know, Jane Cahoon was miserable, even though they're prohibited. So why make criminals of, you know, a huge percentage of the population And they're going to do it because they want to do it. It's it's,
3: the drinking analogy, Chris. I mean, when you shoot off fireworks, you can hurt other people or you store them improperly. You know, your house can blow up. You know, if you drink. But we didn't have that. But it is against the law to go and drink and drive.
1: But we didn't have that. What we had, what the argument here is, it's not about the overwhelming number of injuries. It's not about houses burning down. It's about. I hate this noise in my neighborhood. It disturbs the peace. It bothers my dog. My uncle has PTSD, and this you know makes him feel like he's back in in Afghanistan. Well,
3: that's people,
1: yeah that that's that that's the argument. But it's happening anyway. So what do you do as a society if if so many of your neighbors are doing it anyway? What's the point of having a law that you're not enforcing? I, I hope the Senate has this debate. It'd be a great debate to get people from all walks of life in. Maybe there's a solution. Maybe you set up zones where people can go. Maybe maybe the metro parks become a fireworks zone for one night a year, and anybody that wants to shoot them off goes there and scares the hell out of the squirrels. Anyway, it's uh, this week in the CLE. We're not going to get to the John Kasich Supreme Court question because we have run out of time. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody for listening to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back with another episode tomorrow.